way we think. So now we want to give this time to you as well. We want to keep worshiping you now, even this moment as we sit down and take our Bibles out. We thank you for this time as well. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Jim, if you want to hold off on the slides that I gave you just for a second. So, this doesn't normally happen. You know, normally uh, we do cross-training after church and people ask questions and we, and we talk. But I got a question four times asked to me this week and it was the same question based on last week's sermon. You want to know what it is? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. There was no longer any sea, people. <laughs> you know? Uh, and so, uh, four different times people said, what in the world is up with the sea? Where'd it go? What happened? Um, so, let me just take a couple minutes before we jump into the sermon sermon. Uh, normally this is a cross-training discussion, but I, I think because so many people ask me, I think this is a good thing. You know, I was, I was asked this question at church, I, when I went, went up to Honey Rock this week, I was asked it there. This is a good question. So, um, and it gets at a good, it gets at a good subject too. Um, so I grabbed a couple verses on C, and uh, I'm just going to read those uh, in a second here. Okay. So th- this is a few verses on the C in the Old Testament, and, and you don't have to write it down. You don't have to turn there, but but you could write it down if you want. This is Psalm 74, uh, 13 and 14. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. Now, we know part of this verse is referencing when God separated the waters of the Red Sea. Remember that story? And Israel walked on dry land. And so the sea stood between Israel and freedom. Israel and victory. And the Egyptians are coming. And so the sea was in opposition to God's people. It was opposing them. It was stopping them. And God had to separate it so that Israel could walk through. Okay, so, so again, the sea is opposing the people of God. Now you get like Psalm 89, uh, verse 8 and 10. Listen to this one. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you, O Lord? With your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. When the waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arms. So again, you have the sea standing in opposition to God's people. And, and apparently, God rules it, and He can calm it any time He wants. This opposition, this force of evil, this, this spiritual uh, uh, opposition to God's people. So God can just stop it, just like Jesus on the waters. Just peace be still, and it's done. It's done. Then you get to the book of Revelation, and this is interesting, because you get to Revelation, and you've got, uh, you've got the great prostitute who's sitting on what? Sitting on many waters. Again, opposing God's people. And, and, and then you've got um, the beast with, with, with the horns on his head. Where, where does that be? And we, don't, we, don't, we don't really believe it's like, a, like, this, like this monster coming out of the water, but, but it stands for a person. Where does the beast come out of? The sea. I think that's Revelation 13. He comes out of the sea. So when you get to Revelation 21, I think you're already prompted to to look at this and say, the sea is in opposition to God's people. It represents evil 
It represents uh, the unknown. It represents chaos. It's where the Antichrist comes out of. And there's no more sea. So it may very well mean that anything that's going to oppose us anymore, all of our enemies are now done with. They're dealt with. And we know that's very biblical as well. Every knee will bow. All the enemies will be done with. They'll be, they'll be put under the footstool. So, now, you could read that, and, and some do read it the other way. Uh, people like John MacArthur and there are others that would read it and say, literally, there's no more H2O. You know? Now, your body's made up, I think, of 65% H2O. So I, I don't know how that all works, but, but he says, no, the sea as we know it is no more. He takes it literally. And this is my point. Um, <clears throat> when you read the book Heaven by Alcorn, you are going to see, I think Alcorn leans towards the literal in a lot of things. It, it's very, very literal. And I'm not saying that's absolutely incorrect, but I think you've got to keep in mind that there are metaphors, and Revelation uses a lot of that language. We don't think there's literally a dragon running around on earth. That's more Lord of the Rings-ish. Uh, but you do write in this way when you're writing about Satan. And it's apocalyptic language. So um, will I be surprised if there's no more sea? I guess I won't be surprised, but I also wouldn't be surprised to see the sea and know that what that means is everything the sea represents to the ancient mind that is, opposition to God, opposition to God's people, fighting them, uh, Satan coming out of it, the Antichrist coming out of it, that's done. No more. No more opposition, no more enemies. So, I give that to you to say, I won't be surprised if I see water in heaven. In fact, what we're going to look at today says there's actually a river running through it. So, um, okay, we'll leave that there. That's my answer to uh, the sea. <clears throat> and how we interpret the Bible, sometimes very literally and sometimes more figuratively. We've got to be careful how we do that. Um, okay, you know there's a verse in Hebrews that says, uh, strive to enter the Lord's rest. And, and, and really, rest is an image for heaven. That, that heaven is a place of rest from labor and toil and difficulty and, and persecution. And when we get to heaven... We just get to rest. How many would love to have a, light, a nice long nap right now? How many, when you think of your troubles, the next thing you think of is, but my bed is coming soon. You know, like, I'm going to rest because today was hard. This week was bad and there was things going on. And, and you think, I just want to rest. And God gave us the example of rest in Hebrews 4.10. Anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his work. Heaven is a place of rest. Now, maybe you think of it something like these pictures. Rest. You know, we're, we're going to have a great banquet with the Lamb, right? Jesus is going to, Jesus, we're going to have this great banquet. We're all going to be there. And some of you are just going to be like, <laughs> it's a place of rest, right? You know, I don't know. Or maybe you're like this. Standing guard at the gates, you know, and, and, uh, Right? What would the queen say? I don't know. Okay, next. Or maybe you're like this guy, you know? Jesus is going table to table, you know, an important person. And, and you're just like, missed it. You said it was a place of rest. You know, he, he's never going to live that down. But then there's this guy. Oh, my. Like, like you, you know that's not sanitary. And you know, and you know that someone like, 
like you walked onto the subway next and grabbed a hold of that thing. <laughs> if only you knew. If only you knew. <laughs> okay. And I think this is, oh yeah, then there's this one. That's how I spent my college study time, right there. That was it. And then uh, last but not least, uh, yeah. Now, you know, I don't know if there's dogs in heaven, but if there are, I'm sure that's going to happen, right? I'm thinking there's probably dogs in heaven. I don't don't know if they're going to be your dogs that that, that you had growing up, but I'm sure that's going to be something like that. But with all this rest, maybe some of you have wondered, what is it we're actually going to do? What what are you going to do there? And, and, And maybe... Like, we see the images of, of revelation and, and worshiping God, and then you say, well, I know we're going to be worshiping Him, so maybe that's singing for eternity upon eternity upon eternity. You know, lots of singing. And, and yes, there will be praising, and it will be amazing. I don't think you're ever going to get tired of it, even if you get tired of it in this life. I don't think it's going to be like that there. But I can also say, we've got work to do. Would you go to Revelation 22? I want to show it to you. Revelation 22. And I know, I'm going to read something here, and you're going to be thinking about it all week long, just like that, that C thing. But, you know, <laughs> here we go. Revelation 22. It's the last chapter of your Bible. So if you have a hard time finding it, I'm sorry. But it's the last chapter of the Bible. You got it? All right. <laughs> here we go. We're going to read the first five verses. Uh, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. So, water of life. I don't know if that's H2O. You know, what kind of chemical is that? I don't know. But it's the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. So, so far we've said this is a garden city. You know, that, that there's trees, there's a river of life, and, and, and it's a city. So it's, it's a garden city, however that will be, whatever that will look like. And then it says in verse 3, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They'll see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So I see a couple things we're going to be doing here. I, in verse 3, I see that God's servants will serve Him. Serving implies work. We're going to work. And then, there, and then there's reigning. If you get in verse 5, they will reign forever and ever. Where We're going to be ruling. There, there's going to be tasks for us to do to rule. I don't think we're all going to be sitting in our beds with our dogs, issuing commands, you know, like ruling from your... I I don't think that's what it means. I mean, if you try to put all these images together and say, well, I'm ruling and I'm resting, that's from the bed, I guess, you know. I I don't think so. It's going to be active. So here's my main idea this morning. It's really simple. His servants will serve him. We're going to have stuff to do in heaven because God wants us to serve him in heaven. And he's going to choose things for us to do. Now, I want to explain what I mean by that. I want, to, I want to dig into this a little bit. What does it mean when we say his servants will serve? Well, that's you, you believers. You're the servants, and you're going to serve your king. What does that look like? 
Well, let me explain it in three ways. There's probably a lot of things I could say about it, but I think there's some key things I can say. Number one, uh, we're going to work, but we're not going to toil. We're not going to toil. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, We're going to work. We're not going to toil. If you look at verse 3, what's the first thing verse 3 says? No longer will there be any curse. So you're serving God here under the curse. You're going to serve God there minus the curse. If you go back to the beginning, Adam was given tasks in the Garden of Eden. Before there was sin, there was work. And Adam worked the garden. So I want to show you that just for a second. If you, uh, Genesis 2.15, we'll put it on the screen here. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So well, let's keep this straight. God planted a garden in Eden. And the garden wasn't done. Okay, I mean, just, just get this now. God could have created plants. He could have made animals that never needed anything, that were, you know, indestructible, didn't need our help at all, and yet he made a creation that we could interact with. Here's the two Hebrew words in this verse. We'll get the first one up. Um, Abad, uh, to work or serve. He, He put man there to work or serve the garden, to work it. And another word, uh, we'll put that up. <clears throat> oh, back one, shamar. Uh, to keep or watch or preserve. So, so you have to preserve the work of God? You know, like, like I got, God could have made a garden that didn't need that. But he created a world that did need us to interact with it, to cultivate it, to watch over it to use our creative abilities in it. Think about that. Think about God giving you a work assignment and it fits who you are, who he made you to be. It's the perfect job. I made you for this task and there is no sin standing in your way. There's no obstacle here. Just do the work I gave you. And part of the work was naming animals. And you think about that and you go, you know, God made the animals. Don't you think he could have named them? I mean, he knows the stars. He could name them one by one. But he made all these animals and he brings them to Adam, you know, and name all these things. Adam does. So, so God invites us into his work. It's like I made all this. Now I want to share you, share with you this work. Join me in it. Rule the earth. Reign with me. It's always reign with me. You're still the king but I get to rule with you? How is that? And God says, name the animals. I made them, but you get to name them. So you're going to have this job that God is going to give you in heaven, and it's going to fit you. And you're going to be able to use your creative abilities in in what you're doing in heaven. And it's going to be wonderful. He's going to share his ruling with you. He's going to trust you to do that well. And there's no sin to stop you, so you're going to have a great time doing it. Uh, Next verse, we can put that up. Um, To Adam, he said, okay, so we fast forward now. Adam and Eve have disobeyed God. Sin has entered paradise. Sin has entered the garden. And so once Adam and Eve sinned, this is what God said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. It's like your one job, 
Work the ground. Name the animals. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. You see the word there? Toil. It's painful work. It's difficult work. It's sweat of your brow work. It's this creation's not cooperating anymore kind of work. The creation was made to be tended to, but now it's resisting us. Ask any farmer who's dealt with drought. Ask when things break down. Things, uh, things don't tend to get better that we build. Things tend to get worse. It'd be nice to build your house and leave it alone for the rest of your life and say it's going to be fine for the rest of my life, but you always got to fix something over time. That's the way it works. Things break down. It's scientific law. And it's the law of sin. Things just break down. And they resist us. So, in heaven, we're going to work, but we're not going to do this. We're not going to toil. There's not going to be the problems. It's going to work well. It's going to be beautiful. Let me go on. Number two. When it says his servants will serve him, the word serve in Revelation 22, verse 3, the word serve is the word for worship. It's the word for worship. His servants will serve him. His servants will worship him. Our work will be worship. Let me give you the Greek word if you care about this. Here it is, latruo. It means to serve. Primarily means serve or it can mean worship. One of the most famous places you'll see this word probably is Romans 12.1. Uh, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of latruo. It's your spiritual act of service or worship. So we, we often, here's our issue. We tend to separate the two. Here's my service. Here's my worship. Worship's what I do on Sunday. You know, I mean, I, I think that way. T- I, I know that's not true, but I tend to think that way. But God gave us a word. You know, John chose a word. Paul, the Apostle Paul, chose a word latruo to describe this thing. And he's saying, when you serve God, when you work for God, you're also worshiping God. Not only in heaven, but here too. Our work will be worship. So for those of you that say, or maybe you've thought at some point, oh my goodness, we're going to be worshiping God forever, and to me that sounds boring. Again, I don't think you're right about that, but I understand where you're coming from. But I wanted you to keep in mind, when you say we're going to worship God forever, I can say, yes, that's absolutely true. You will latruo God forever. You will serve Him. You will worship Him. You're going to be doing all sorts of things in heaven, and it's all worship. Now think about what that means for you today. You have a job, you're working, work as unto the Lord. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Your work is worship. It's worshiping God. Now, I was just having a conversation this morning about this and thinking about this. Um, We have a hard time viewing our work as worship. We see what we're doing with our hands or with our minds and we say, how is this worship? Maybe I'll ask you this. God, we sang today that that your plans are still to prosper. God blesses his people. God blesses the world. He makes the rain shine on the just and the unjust. He's he's into blessing even sinners at times when things go well for sinners. 
He's merciful. A couple questions. And I think you ought to ask yourself this about your job tomorrow. By the way, we're probably, we're less than 24 hours away from your work starting tomorrow. It's coming, you know. So when you go to work tomorrow, maybe you should ask yourself this. How is my work worshiping God? What am I doing that glorifies Him? Am I working in a way that makes God look great? That makes it look like I take Him seriously in my life as my King? Do I work for my boss or do I work for my big B boss? You know, who are you working for ultimately? Keep that in mind as you go to work and your work will seem more like worship. Or think about this. Here's another good question. How does my work contribute to human flourishing? You know what I mean when I say that? How do I contribute to this world being a better place? What am I doing that helps other people and cares for them in a similar way that God might care for them? How many times... Has there been something that could have gone wrong with your car and ended up really bad, but it didn't because it seems like God helped you with your car, you know, or, or just an accident or something that could have been really bad and God intervened because he wanted to help you in that. I'm not saying he stops all accidents, but our God is active. He's sovereign. He makes choices. Um, if you're a mechanic and you work on someone's brakes, you are contributing to human flourishing because that person now has a safer car. It's not just about you bringing home a paycheck, although it is that. You're supposed to provide for your family. It is that. But it's also, I'm doing something that's helping other people. I'm fixing their car. You've got to start looking at it. And even if you have just a part in the process, if you had a factory job and you're just building a piece, sorry, I come from central Illinois, caterpillar country you know so i think like this if you're just if you just are building a piece of something you got to get in your mind what is that piece going towards what's it building and then when that when that machinery is done when the crane is done when the bulldozer is done what will it do that helps society and then you see how you're contributing to human flourishing and you're worshiping your god in that way We've we got to see our work as Latruo, as worship, because in eternity, it will be exactly that. And in fact, it is that today. It's worship. Okay. Uh, thirdly, when it says his servants will serve him, that's us together. I just want to focus on that. We'll work together. You notice these images are all over the place in the Bible. I mean, you've got... People worshiping God around the throne. By the way, when people worship God around the throne, uh, typically there's, it's the Greek word proskuneo, which is, which is more of a bowing down worship, you know. It's a physical response, like of, of, I'm in front of majesty, and I just, like when, the, um, like when Herod said deceitfully, I want to go worship Jesus, I want to worship the Christ or the Messiah, um, he's, he would proskuneo, I want to bow down to him. Um, that's a word for worship. But in any case, um, we're going to work together. We're going to work together. Work is a relational activity. Let me take you back to the garden and show this to you. Um, 
Adam uh, is naming animals, and this is Genesis 2. Let's bring that up. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. Like, God made everything. He made all the animals. He made man. But it's not good that man is alone. What was man doing all by himself? Well, he was ruling over the garden. He was naming animals. And God said, in the middle of all Adam's work, now, now, now usually... Like when people preach about this, I understand why they say this. I say it too. It's true. God brings the animals in front of Adam to show Adam, there's nobody like you here, you know? The elephants aren't like you. The dogs aren't like you. You may think those dolphins are like you, but they're not, you know? Um, they're beautiful creatures. These, these things are just not like you. I'm going to make one like you, another human being, a female. So this is what God said. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed of the ground all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Again, God invites us to join him in ruling. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Often when we talk about Eve being a helper, we talk about who she is. But it's also appropriate to say, as a helper, what was Eve supposed to do? How was she supposed to help? And I think the easiest answer is, right in front of us, name the animals. Rule the garden. Be a co-ruler with your husband. Do what he's doing. Cultivate the garden. Keep it. Adam needed a helper. And Eve was the helper. Now, what this means is, this is before sin, that God envisions us to work side by side in relationship with each other. Work is relational. I know some of you some days wish it wasn't relational. Maybe your boss doesn't think it's relational. Okay? But it is relational. That's the way God designed it in the context of work. God said, it's not good for man to be alone. That, 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 that's, he needs a companion, but he also needs a work partner. And that's the woman. We work together. We work side by side. When I was, uh, when I was in high school, one of my first jobs was uh, at a Christian bookstore. And um, I was in the music department, big bookstore, sold music. And one time, my boss said, Niall, I just need to talk to you. You're a good worker, but you're doing too much talking to the people that come in. And I thought, I'm selling music. Isn't that what I'm here for? You know, I didn't say that, though, because you don't say that to your boss. You just shut your mouth. That's a good rule, young people. You shut your mouth. Okay? And, uh, and so I said, what would you like me to do? And they said, uh, that my boss said, you need to dust the shelves. No, no, I, I want to sell what's on the shelf, so I'm doing relationships. That, you know, It didn't matter. That's what the boss said. I did it. But, but I think the, the point being, work is, no matter what you do, there is an element of relationship in your work, I think. Now, someone's going to tell me afterwards they have no relationship in their work, and you're going to prove me wrong. But God, let me say it this way, God designed relationships. God designed work to be relational. He gave Eve to Adam, and part of the purpose was, you need a helper. There's a lot to do here. And they were to rule the garden together. So, I know when I say work is relational, you think, 
Oh my goodness, my coworkers. Well, let me take a step back then, and, and I'm kind of bringing things to a close here. Okay, I, I just I just want to address for you when I was preaching today and when I used the word toil, and if you were about to say Amen, my work is toil. Either you hate what you do, or it doesn't pay enough, or your boss is driving you crazy. Whatever it is, you would say this is toil. When I try to fix this, it doesn't go right. It's a curse, you know. Um, what would I say to you who in less than 24 hours go back to your toil? I want to give you some encouragement this morning. Here's what I would say to you. Uh, kind of overarching principle. I'd say to you, don't grow weary in well-doing. God says, I know it's hard to work. I know it's difficult. I know you get tired of it. I know. Don't grow weary. Keep going. And then I want to say three things underneath that idea of don't get tired, don't grow weary, keep doing good. Uh, let me say three things to you. And maybe this will hit you, maybe not. I just Number one, let me say this. Oh, number one. There it is, yeah. Thought I was losing my mind. Okay. Um, your work is even more necessary with the presence of the curse. Like, like do you know that? Do, do you know funeral home directors? We won't need those guys in heaven. But we need them here. You know, there, there's a whole bunch of things that break down, and we need you to fix it. But we might not need it there. We need it here. If we take the curse seriously, that God cursed the ground and said, things are not going to go well, thorns and thistles, sweat of your brow, you're now going to toil. If we take the curse seriously, what that means is what you do today and tomorrow is even more necessary. Because you have resistance. You have opposition. You have things blocking you. And you're needed. You're necessary. Because the curse is a real thing. Part of what we do in this world is we work against the curse. Like, we brought the curse on ourselves. Don't get me wrong. We sinned. We deserved it. But when the hurricane sweeps through, as we talked about last week, who answers the call to go and help and, and try to alleviate what the curse has caused? Right? Greg, you're here, right? I saw you. You know, you were texting me last week, and I think one of the things you said about Pastor Enoch and Haiti and Vision of Hope is they didn't get affected by this hurricane. Not, not directly. It didn't hit them. And their question is, why didn't it hit us? And I think, Greg, if I'm right, their answer is the reason the hurricane didn't hit us is so we can go over there and help the people that it did hit. We've got to deal with the effects of the curse and there might be a way that your job does that. Consider it. Just consider it. That your skills alleviate something going on in the world today that could be better. Your work is so necessary. Number two. Uh, I would say to you, keep working to improve your work relationships. Will anyone amen me on that? <laughs> right, I, I know. I know. <laughs> um, I've had my share of bosses that, that, that just didn't jive very well. You know, I had a great one in my last church, though, which was awesome. You know, ten years of that, and I feel like this is awesome. But, but I know there's ones that are hard to work for. And I know there's coworkers that 
are so mad because you got the raise. Or you look at them and they got the raise and you say, what did they do to get that? They must be being chummy with the boss because I work harder than they do. You know, So I get it. There's jealousy. There's strife. There's conflict. But what God would say to you is, I made work relational. What are you going to do to make it better? Not make it worse. What are you going to do to make it better? And you want to know the ultimate bad working relationship? I don't know if they work together much, but it, it, it comes out of the working culture. It didn't take long. Cain and Abel. You know? Cain works the ground. Abel works the animals. And when they brought their offerings to God, God didn't accept Cain's, but God accepted Abel's, and Cain got mad and killed his brother. We don't do well with working together. They might have just separated and not even looked at each other, you know, if that was going to happen. But we got to work with people. And God would say, I know you're not going to go in and kill your coworker, but the least you can do is work to improve the relationship. What can you do? This is God's task he's given to you. Work to improve the work relationship. And just know that if your coworker never likes you and despises your guts, you've done your part. You've done your part. I'll just I'll give you credit for that. You've done what the Lord asked. You work to improve that relationship and you can leave it there. Leave the rest with God. You can't change your coworker's heart. You can just do what you can do and honor the Lord who created work to be relational. Uh, and then thirdly and finally, Considering your frailty, for goodness sake, rest. Rest. If you're a seven days a week worker and you say that's just the way it should be because that's the way mom did it, that's the way dad did it, uh, and, and you've got five different jobs and you never see your kids or you, you don't have time and it's a miracle you came to church this morning because it's usually not time for God either, you need to rest. And maybe you've got to work on Sunday because that's what the job says. You pick a different day. I pick Friday, I rest, and I try to unplug. And yes, I know there could be emergencies that happens, and there's some things that can happen, but I try my best to unplug and just say, you know what, the emails will wait, the calls can wait, it's okay. I don't always do it perfectly, you could ask Christy about that. But I know, I know we have to rest. If you get vacation, take a vacation. Make sure you're investing in yourself. Because if God rested on the seventh day, he did it to set you an example. God never needs to rest. In fact, we have scriptures that say he doesn't rest. He works when we're sleeping, it says. But he rested to show that you need to rest. And one day, one day we're going to be in a place called paradise that's so wonderful, we can call it rest, and we can call it worship, and it's, but we know it's not going to be toil. It's not going to be toil. Let me leave you with this. Uh, Jesus tells a story. I'd like to repeat it for you here. There was a guy who, ha- who had servants. And this man went away on a, on a trip, and he was attending a wedding feast. And he told his servants, I want you to be ready the moment I come back. Servants, I want you to be ready for me, the master, to get back home. I want you to be dressed at all times. I want the lamps to be lit. And even if I come back in the middle of the night, I want you to be awake and alert. 
ready to receive your master. And then Jesus says something amazing. If I didn't fill in the rest of the story, what would, how do you think the story would end? Based on everything we've said this morning. I imagine you would think the story would end like this. And I will come at a time you do not know. And you will serve me, servants. But that's not how the story ends. The master does come at a time when nobody knows. But it says, this is Luke 12, by the way. Luke 12, 35 through 47, I think. Uh, The master comes in. And it says he takes off the outer clothes and and he dresses like a servant. And he has the servants. The servants recline and the master serves the servants. That's how the story ends. One day, we're going to be sitting at a table and Jesus is going to be serving us and you're probably going to feel a lot like Peter at the Lord's Supper when, when Jesus washes feet. You're going to say, how in the world did I get here? You know, like why am I amongst this great company and with the Lord? And, and what in the world is Jesus doing serving me? What in the world? And what you're going to realize in that moment is Jesus is a servant forever. He came to earth to serve you here. And then he went back to be with the Lord and he's going to serve you there. What in the world? Some of you don't know Jesus yet. And so I would say to you, Jesus has already served you in the most amazing way possible. He died on the cross for you to pay the price for your sins. That's the ultimate act of service. No one will beat it. And then he rose from the dead. I would invite you to respond today. Bow your heads and close your eyes. If you'd like to receive the service of your Savior today, receive the forgiveness He bought for you, would you look up at me at this time? If you're here and you need to respond today. Okay. I see you, sir. Let me pray. And it's not a magical prayer. I just want to give some words to your faith that you're expressing right now. Pray something like this in your heart. Lord Jesus, I thank you for serving me so well that you would let yourself be crucified, killed, to pay the price for all my mistakes, all my sins. I'm so sorry for those things I've done. Would you forgive me? Would you give me a new, transformed life so that now I can look forward to be resurrected one day? Even as I know, Jesus, you are resurrected. Jesus, I want to be with you forever. I want to serve you forever. And somehow, in an astonishing way, You serve me. I'm so grateful to receive your service. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.